0: I love technology, but I'm actually kind of a technomoron, so bear with me as I um, get this all pulled together here. So thank you for, uh, pardon me? I think I've got it, yeah. I I actually practiced this earlier, (laughs) afterwards, and... um, I think I think I do, you know. But I I I might not, you know, actually I'm I'm not sure I do now. So I might need a hand to help help me with this. I'm sorry. And I went through this earlier, but and you know, here comes a faithful brother who did this earlier and he's coming up again. So um Okay, well, no! <laughs> um, John, thank you for your, your kind words earlier. Um, when John asked me to speak today, he was gracious enough to tell me... Um, uh, we'll just go with... Yeah, that one. Perfect. He gave me the date and waited till I made a commitment before he gave me the topic. So... <laughs> and uh, so when he when he told me what it was about um election and predestination um i was afraid and um i thought you know this would be a great weekend to go fishing but <laughs> but no um i'm i'm actually happy to be here and it's an honor to be amongst all of you and uh, I was here early this morning and watching all of the the preparations everybody getting you know getting ready getting the chairs set up and the coffee made and there's so much that goes into putting a service like this together and there's so many wonderful people that are serving all of you are are playing an impor- such an important role and when we we couldn't do what is is done here without everybody contributing and that's really the that's really the heart and the meaning I think of of community. Um, About three years ago now, I think, um, John had asked me to speak. um, Once every three years or so, he, he kind of loses his perspective. And maybe I should have Tobin speak. But um, about three years ago, it was it was a service after Christmas. And, um, you know, typically that's a smaller, a smaller crowd, you know, the service right after Christmas. But um, I came in, it was early in the morning, I came in through those doors. And there was a group of people praying here, which was really encouraging. I thought, oh, this is wonderful, because I'm sure going to need prayer to make it through this message. And um, one of the brothers that was praying said, "You know, Lord, I know that you know John is not here this weekend, and obviously our expectations aren't very high." Um, <laughs> and part of me was like, "Well, wait a minute, you know." And then I thought, "Oh, I'm so glad that their expectations aren't very high because I, uh, if you're expect if you're expecting something from me and out of me, I, I'm I'm going to disappoint you. I'm just telling you. I I don't have you know, but if you're expecting something from the Heavenly Father." Those are wonderful expectations. And may I encourage you to come this morning with an expectant heart. And if for some reason you haven't or you're still you know, struggling with some things, those things will be there when the service is over. You can get back to those. But just right now, in an attitude of, of submission and prayer, let's go to the Father and ask him to guide us and raise our level of expectation for him meeting with us today. Uh, Lord, we are so desperately in need of Of you just to even make it through our days, Lord. Uh, We need you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your understanding um, and your great compassion. And we're so thankful that you show up. And we're so thankful that um, when we place our expectations and our hope in you, you faithfully, consistently deliver. So, election and predestination. I'm going I'm to sort of subtitle this uh, A Tale of Two Banquets, and you'll see why in just a little bit. Um, but again, back to this idea of expectations. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. How many of you have experienced that? Your diligent seeking, your heartfelt yearning and crying out to the Heavenly Father, He does reward that earnest uh, seeking. Um, So I thought in in preparation for this uh, topic on election and predestination, uh, first of all, you you all are going to really have the benefit today of leaving the message uh, after it's done and really having complete 100% clarity on the topic. You will know exactly the right thing to believe um, about this topic, so... And the bridge that I have out for sale is still for sale. So, but no. But um, there was a man who who became ill and and died, uh, went to heaven. He was met there at the pearly gates, uh, Saint Peter, and he had lived his entire life believing uh, as a staunch Calvinist, firmly entrenched in the doctrine of predestination, and everything was predestinated. Every choice was God's choice. Um, so. When he, when he got to heaven, Peter ushered him man and said, Welcome to the joys of the Lord that have been prepared for you. Uh, enter. And so he walked through the gate, and he came to another two gates after that. And one was a line that said, Predestination. There's a line of people there. Another line that said, Free will. He thought, Well, it's obvious. You know, I, I'm a Calvinist. I'm going to go over here to the Predestination line. So he got in line, and it wasn't but a minute or so, an angel came up to him and said, Um, why did you come into this line? He said, well, I chose to come here because I'm a predestined, believe in predestination. He said, did you say you chose to come here in this line? He said, yeah. He said, oh, you're in the wrong line. If you believe in choice, you need to head over there to the free will line. So he went over to the free will line and stood there for another minute or so. Another angel came up and said, what are you doing in this line? He said, I didn't have any choice. That other angel told me I had to come here. So that pretty much wraps up the concept of predestination and free will, right? We're never going to completely understand it. And really, I don't believe the goal and the expectation for today is to come away with some crystal clear understanding of the doctrine of predestination and the free will because people that are a whole lot smarter than I have have been arguing this and studying this for centuries. That's not what we're here for. We're here to learn about the heart of our Heavenly Father, and what he has called us to, what he aspires us to become. I'd like everyone to stand as we read this this scripture. If you were to ask God, how many of you have gotten together with people and said, tell me your story, what is your story? And they would, they would share what their story was. Well, if you were to ask God, what is your story? Well, his story is Jesus. It's the whole of it. It's the all of it. So here's a great passage from the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we'll read this together. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, so he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs you may be seated may god add blessings to the reading of his holy word so this concept i think that we we all have of unconditional love when we think about the heavenly father we think you know what incredible awesome unconditional love he has he has bestowed and that's true because we know from the scriptures, we know from his heart, and we know from, from the words of, of Jesus himself, who I love what it says there in, in Hebrews, is the exact, not close to, but the exact expression of the nature of God, of the Old Testament Jehovah is manifested in the New Testament Jesus. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen the exact expression of the Heavenly Father. Well, does unconditional love mean that there's no, there's no conditions with which uh, or that surround the issue of salvation and our relationship with God? No, it doesn't mean that. It does mean that unconditionally he gave himself, he offered himself in a way that made the invitation to come and participate in his kingdom, free and open to all. All are invited. Jesus is the story of God. And it's amazing how Jesus uses the power of story to reveal the very nature and character of God. I'm going to read the passage here from um, Matthew 22. Um, Jesus spoke in parables and I love the parables. Some of the parables, without the explanation, uh, were hard for people to understand. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, you know, uh, the, the mysteries of God are hidden, but unto you it's it's been given to know the mysteries of God. So many times, the, the disciples, after they would hear a parable, they'd be like, I don't think I understand that. Well, he would take time with them and explain and elaborate on what those those parables meant. So he was constantly using story. To communicate his truth. And this is the story about a king and his banquet. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent out his slaves to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other slaves and said, Tell those who are invited, look, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and the fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm, another to his business." Let's pause there for just a moment. Remember when Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler, and he wanted to know what he needed to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus went through and talked about, as, as any good Jew would do, and any good rabbi, of course, the greatest rabbi that there ever was, was Jesus. And so he went through and said, you know, obey the commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as he sort of iterated all of those, those conditions, if you will, about what it meant to be, uh, to be faithful to God, um, he said, the, the, the rich ruler said, well, I've, I've done all those things from my youth. And there was an admiration that Jesus had for him. He said, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything you have and distribute to the poor. And he walked away s- sorrowful because he had riches. And they were an ensnarement to him. They were an entrapment to him. That was the one thing that apparently he couldn't, um, he couldn't relinquish. Now, we don't know uh, about what happened in that rich young ruler's life Excuse me. Um, as time went on. He may have at some point uh, come to terms with his need to submit to, to Jesus and, and the way of God. But many people, when they're presented with this opportunity, this invitation, they feel like, I've, I've got too many other things going on. I'm not ready. I've got this I've got to take care of. I've got to do that. Or, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good enough yet. Well, guess what? (laughs) If you're waiting for that, it's never going to happen. None of us are ever going to be good enough yet to be the recipients of his great and awesome love. They paid no attention and went away, and one to his own farm, another to his own business. And the others seized his slaves, treated them outrageously, and killed them. And this is really in reference to uh, historically what happened um, with the prophets of God, the mouthpieces of God that were sent to the nation of Israel. Uh, so many of them ended up uh, being, you know, tortured, being killed, being shunned. The king was enraged, and he sent out his troops, destroyed those murders, and burned down their city. Then he told his slaves, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those slaves went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. But when the king came in to view the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without the wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up, hand and foot, throw him out into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here's the the pinnacle verse here. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So what does it mean to be chosen? Well, I, I really think it can be something as simple as responding to the invitation. Because what are we being chosen for, It's not just that we might appreciate the joys of heaven once we die. We're being chosen and invited to and chosen to become a part of his story, the story of God, Jesus. And what he wants from us as believers is he wants us to continue that story. He wants us to be a part of that in such a way that it's not just about our own salvation and, our, and whether we're secure in ourselves and whether or not because we believe in, in the doctrine of predestination we know we're going to heaven because, you know, once saved, I'm always saved. That tends to be a pretty internally focused perspective. He wants our perspective to be so much bigger, so much broader. The very nature of God has always been to provide redemption and reconciliation of intimacy and relationship with him. God alone extends the invitation. We alone are given the opportunity and the autonomy to respond to his invitation. Because God is all-knowing and possesses foreknowledge, he already knows who will choose and who will reject his invitation. Invitations. Here's a great invitation that we see in the Gospel of John. Um, he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own. He came to those that... He, he invited his own to the banquet, to the wedding feast, right? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, those that were summoned after the initial guests were asked to come and didn't come for whatever reason, those, he gave them the right to be the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Let's look at this word um, predestined. So the word itself comes from a Greek word, I believe I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but for Rizzo. and it's only used six times in the New Testament and it basically means it's, it's translated as to determine beforehand. So this predestination to determine beforehand God sets in order order sets in course a predetermined because of his foreknowledge he knows how how people are going to respond and he can orchestrate we know from proverbs it says that the footsteps of the righteous are ordered of god and i would suspect that all of you that have uh, that have walked with god any time uh, at all have sensed at times that god ordained something to happen that it, that it was it was too, too much to be just coincidence, too much to be chance, right? I think probably everybody in this room that, that knows him has had those experiences where God has ordained, he's orchestrated perhaps just the right set of circumstances, the right set of conversations, running into somebody at just the right moment that brought a word of encouragement. That's part of that foreknowledge and that uh, determining beforehand, God makes those things happen. One of the interesting things that that comes out of this word, we get the root, the root word for Pariso is actually the word horizon, which basically means to set boundaries. There's specific boundaries and, and guardrails to, to his, his truth and even his invitations. Um, you know, we read at the very beginning that without faith it's impossible to please him, and that we must first believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So there were some prerequisites. There were some boundaries associated with uh, even attending that that invitation. The invitation went out, right? That unconditional love and that gracious invitation to come and participate in this great feast, this great banquet. Um, But there was also a, a requirement. There was a condition, and the condition is you needed to be dressed for the wedding, Now, that doesn't mean, don't anybody mistake uh, that thinking that, you know, we have as a a congregation that we have somehow have a dress code. Well, we do. You need to be dressed, okay? If you come in here and you're not dressed, we're probably going to ask you to get dressed. But there certainly is that, you know, that come-as-you-are concept that I think characterizes what this congregation really has been and has tried to emulate. But... Even as we come as we are, we can't enter into this relationship, this, uh, this feast, if you will, this banquet that he's prepared for us without putting on his righteousness, his robes of righteousness. If we try to come and based on our own works, based on our own intelligence, based on our own giftedness, we're going to be stunted. We're going to be, uh, it's going to be an incomplete thing. And you're not going to be able to participate in that wedding feast. You need him. You need his righteousness to clothe you and surround you. So what is this What is this thing that we've been chosen for? Okay. So people sometimes get hung up on this concept of, Predestination and free will. Well, you know, if I'm if I'm predestined, then i you know, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm going to heaven. And I'm secure in that. And I'm safe in that. And there is, there is security, there is safety in knowing that He has, that He's made the invitation, you've accepted the invitation. But if if that's what the whole of your you know, religious life is centered on, you're missing out. Because the call for us is not one to just uh, experience the joys of heaven sometime after we die. The the call is for us to experience transformation in our life right now. So that we might be a conduit to bring about that life-giving grace and mercy that that Jesus provides that can help transform others. That's indeed the, the higher calling we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of His Son. That It's not saying those He foreknew, He predestined to, to experience heaven only after you die. We're talking about conformity and transformation in this life so that we might, again, Perpetuate and carry out the story so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Isn't that amazing? We, we are a part of the brothers and sisters of Christ. I, I have a hard time kind of wrapping my head around that. You know, he's my God, he's my Savior, um, he's my brother, he's your brother. And, and he was the firstborn. Among many, God wants to do in us the work of transformation and bringing us to a point of such deep and intimate relationship that when people see us, they see Jesus. Now that work will not be you know, fully completed until we you know, uh, sh- shed this earthly tabernacle, until we take off this old coat and we put on a new one. So there is, uh, there is a part of this that is definitely futuristic. But there's a huge part of this that is now the process of transformation and we need to be about that process and recognize that's what he wants for us. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. For he chose us in him. When did that happen? Before the foundation of the world. There's that foreknowledge. Before the foundation before the foundation of the world, do you remember when Jesus sent out his disciples, and he told them to go into the you know into the villages and the city, and they they basically went on a healing campaign, um, and when they came back, they were like, oh my gosh, the the devils were subjected to us. He said, don't rejoice that the devils were subjected to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And we're told here in this scripture that. He, uh, he has chosen us to be holy and blameless in love before Him. He predestinated us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He lavished on us in the Beloved One. God alone sets the boundaries and the prerequisites of salvation. We alone have the opportunity to choose and accept the invitation within those boundaries. So, predestined for what? For his purpose. The inconceivable blessing of having been chosen by God for a specific calling or purpose um, is so much more than simply resting in the confidence and assurance of our own salvation. Rather, it is a high calling to be an instrument in His hand to bless the world and reach the lost. Um, I didn't share this in the first uh, service, but I, I feel compelled to share this now. Um, when I was very, uh, very young in my faith, I remember really struggling with, you know, gosh, am I, am I saved? Am I, am I really saved? Does, does He really love me? Does He really? You know, care about me. I make, I make so many mistakes. You know, I, I fail so often. I'm not, and it was just this internal strife, and, and um, it, was, it was deeply, deeply painful for me, and I struggled with that for a long time, and I was fixated on it. Um, and then I, sp- I spoke to a, a friend of mine at the time, and I was sharing him this, with him this struggle I was having. He said, you're being pretty selfish, aren't you? And it was like somebody hit me in the nose, and I realized after he said that, yeah, I was. My focus was on, I wanted to feel confidence. I wanted to feel assurance. I wanted to know that I was going to be saved and I was going to go to heaven, right? Well, when I finally grasped that and saw the really the depravity of my own self-focus, I remember praying a prayer and I said, Lord, Even if you slay me. Even if I'm one of those vessels fitted to destruction that you've spoken about in the scripture. It doesn't matter because I just want to be used by you to fulfill your purpose. Whatever that is. So if if, if I don't end up going to heaven, that's okay. That may sound strange to say that. But I can't even begin to tell you what happened after that. There was a transformation in my thought process. And I literally for three days felt that I had almost like a, a sphere or a globe of light that was about two feet out in front of me. And I felt such an incredible um, sense of love and security. And my focus was outward, though. So I, I felt that inward, but I was, I was really seeking to try to bless others and tell people, other people about the love of Jesus. And for me, that was very transformational. And it's even to the point where, I mean, this is like 45, 40, at least 45 years ago when I had that experience and it's still vivided, vivid in, in my experience, in my memory. And it reminds me of how our purpose and the, the foreknowledge and the predestination of God is for the purpose of us being able to give rise to and reflect His glory and His image. Because after all, God's story is really not about us. God's story is about Jesus. God is the perfect parent. I'm sure all of you can relate to um, having uh, children that that are parents and and feeling that sense early on that you you have just sort of this intuition that your child is going to perhaps become maybe an athlete, or maybe, maybe they are, they're so focused on you know, music when they're really young, you think, okay, they're probably going to end up pursuing music. They're probably going to end up doing this. Or maybe they have just a real propensity for mathematics or some level of giftedness. And so the, that, that level of giftedness that you see in your children, and we as parents, um, you know, even though we possess a certain amount of foreknowledge, our intuition, if you will, about the natural um, disposition, giftedness, or potential trajectory of our children's lives. Um, it's not like God's vision of us. But we do have that sense. And, and many times, we as parents are making preparations for um, what our children are going to become. We're making preparations now. Before they become it, we're making preparations for it. Um, how many of you that... Have children maybe when they were really young started a savings account, for example, for college. Okay, probably a lot of you, or maybe, um, you know, you, you, uh, you, des- you decided based on what you perceived their natural giftedness to be. You invested some money, maybe in lessons of some sort, or spent you know hours and hours on the, on the field, football or baseball or tennis or basketball or whatever, coaching them because you saw that in them and you were nurturing them through that. Your foreknowledge uh, allowed you then to set boundaries and establish some expectations of what they could possibly grow into. Children, on the other hand, as they're growing up and mature, really have very little concept as to the incredible heritage and vast resources available to them as a part of that family. They grow into that. Um, And many times the preparations that are being made occur even before that child is born. So as we think about God being that perfect parent, uh, he does the same for us. We're going to transition now to a second banquet, a father and his banquet. This is the story of the prodigal son, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, thank goodness that that's what Jesus' heart is, right? Because each one of us would have probably been uh, in that collection of people that needed to have Jesus sit down and eat with us and and be willing to, to bring us into relationship and rapport with him. But these religious leaders, these Pharisees and scribes and lawyers and religious uh, leaders of the time that that really padded out for Jesus, they didn't like him, they didn't like what he stood for, he didn't fulfill all of the little intricacies of the hundreds of different laws that they had to fulfill in order for them to feel like they were doing the right thing. And they were critical of the fact that he would spend time with these undesirables. So what did Jesus do? He tells a story, as he was so apt to do. And it was actually three stories, but it finished with the story of the prodigal. The first story he told was the story of the lost sheep. And you remember that, where the, 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 the good shepherd um, left the 99 because there was one sheep that was lost. And he went out and, and sought out that sheep, brought him back into the sheepfold. Now, that was not to the exclusion or it did not put in danger the other, the other 99 sheep. That were there. In fact, um, one of the things that was so cool when I was in Israel uh, the the first time, I think back in 2017, is we visited this this shepherd's field, and there were these natural, almost cave-like structures that sort of went back into the earth with some, you know, stone coming out. So there was this shelter here, and then the shepherds would would put stones around that and create this kind of barrier, and then there was a space in the middle of that wall, and that was was called the, the door to the sheepfold. And of course, we know that Jesus identified himself as the door to the sheepfold. That's where the shepherd would lay down and protect because they had this barrier. They had this protection around them, and that he was there right in the door to protect any invaders from coming in. But shepherds, th- they worked together. They weren't just, you know, um, singular uh, individuals out there. So the, not, the, the seeking of the one didn't put it at risk, the 99. He still cared for the 99 and made provisions for those. And the same is true for the, the woman in the lost coin. Um, I, I love the fact that as Jesus is building up to this sort of this climax of this last story of the prodigal, that he, he addresses using a story that, that shepherds and men could relate to, and then he addresses a story using an, an example of a woman and, and her lost coin. Um, Jesus had multiple. He had uh, disciples that were men and women. And, and, and I just love the fact, and if you start reading through the scriptures and even do a full study of the parables, you'll see many, many times these parallels. You'll see the, the sower and the seed, and then you might see the woman putting the, the, the patch on the new, you know, the, the old patch on the new fabric and, and vice versa. So he was very, very much sort of an equal opportunity storyteller and included uh, all of his disciples. And then we get to this final parable. Um, And I like to think of this as a parable of a compassionate father and his two lost sons. So who are the characters? Well, we've got the father, which I believe really in this story represents Jesus. Um, We've got the sons. We've got the young son and the and the older son. The uh, the young son would probably in the first story would probably be representative of those those people that were not initially not invited and finally became invited. Uh, the older son. It's been it's been said and uh, speculated that that kind of represented the you know Israel as a nation at that time and their religious leaders because they they rejected and they were critical. Of of Jesus and didn't want to receive his grace and his compassion so I'm going to read this story he also said a man had two sons the younger of them said to his father father give me the share of this estate that I have coming to me so he distributed the assets to them not many days later the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled into a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living now, that, that foolish living, um, there's different translations that handle that, that aspect of what this, uh, what this prodigal did, um, and we won't go into all of those details, but really, I think this is sort of an all-inclusive, so don't think for a moment that because you know, your sin was this great or this small uh, that, that we aren't all. Prodigals and don't all find ourselves at some point in a distant land in a place distant, far from our relationship with God. So this kind of covers really uh, covers the whole, covers the whole gamut. Squandered his estate in foolish living. How many times do we squander those resources and those blessings that God has given us? After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So here we have the prodigal kind of waking up, coming to terms, coming to his senses. Now, I don't believe this was a a true heartfelt repentance yet. Okay, I think he was hungry. I think he realized that he was in a mess and he really had nowhere else he could go. So he, he's sort of scheming and planning, okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say that, and, and I know I won't be able to be restored to sonship, but at least I can, you know, be a servant, be a slave in the house of my father. So that was what, that was, what was on the heart and the mind of the son. It wasn't yet a true heartfelt uh, repentance, but that was coming. So what do we see here in this story? He's now headed home. He's made a decision. He's going to head back towards his home. So we got up and went to his father. But while his son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And isn't that just like the heavenly father? Well, we're still a far way off. We're told that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This image of the father running to meet the son um, and throwing his arms around him and, and grabbing his neck and giving him a kiss is such an incredible uh, image of, of true unconditional love and heartfelt compassion and desire for rest, uh, reconciliation um, and redemption. But it's interesting to note that in, in this culture, um, what we call a... Um, in uh, Oriental patriarchy, um, for a father, for a grown man to run, was actually uh, considered a shameful thing because they would have to pull up their tunic to be able to have enough, you know, mobility, and they didn't, so they didn't fall, so they'd pull up their tunic, which would expose their lower legs. And that was actually considered a shameful thing during that time and that, and that season in that culture. But he took upon himself... The shame of that action to run out and meet the son where he was. There was another reason why he did that. Um, There was a ceremony that uh, was uh, very well in place during that time, and the Jewish people would have known about this. It was called the Kazaza ceremony, and basically it was an excommunication ceremony. What would happen is if somebody had done what this younger son had done, Because in essence, what he did when he said, I want my inheritance, he basically said, you're dead to me. And he goes off, wastes his life, squanders his his resources. So that would have had a significant economic impact to have half of the family fortune being given and then squandered away. So when that happened in that culture, there was this uh, kazaza ceremony. And what they would do is the, the elders of the city would go out as this person was returning, trying to come back, and, and hopefully get back in good graces. And they would take a great big pot, and it had corn in it, and they would crack it, and all the corn would spill out. And that ceremony was basically an excommunication ceremony. It was, it was to say, in essence, you're not welcome here. You are never going to be able to be a part of this community in any capacity like you were because of what you did. And so here we see the Heavenly Father represented in this story, and we see Jesus represented in this story going out, running out first to make that reconciliation, to bring about that healing and that uh, that redemption and that relationship before the accuser could come and excommunicate. And isn't that the way it is with us? You know, he he is so gracious, he's so loving, and he extends to us his his great love, his great compassion, uh, so that we might appreciate and experience that love and that compassion. Then the son said to him, and I believe this is where the true heartfelt repentance was coming in, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, he said, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. So here you see sort of a parallel to what happened in that, uh, the wedding banquet, um, there were still some garments that had to be put on this, this boy as he's returning, and that had to be done before they brought him in, because what that signaled to the community that wanted to excommunicate him was there's been a restoration of that relationship. And this was true heartfelt repentance at this point. Initially, when he was conjuring up and figuring out, okay, this is how I'm going to do it, this is what I'm going to say, you know, <clears throat> he was trying to fix the problem. Well, the problem wasn't that he didn't have enough to eat. The problem was that he didn't have relationship anymore. He didn't have that intimacy with the father. But the father made made a way for that. By taking on shame, running out to meet the son, and bringing about that redemptive reconciliation on the spot. He had to be dressed for celebration. And then he said, then bring the fatted calf, this is what he, he told to his servants, and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast Because the son of mine who was dead is now alive again. He was lost, but now he's been found. So they began to celebrate. What an incredible, powerful story. Jesus bore our shame. Therefore, since we also have such a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, Jesus is the story, the very story of God. We're going to skip this slide here, but basically, this one, uh, the the older there was a whole another dialogue that occurred between the um, the father and the older uh, brother. He didn't want to have anything to do. He would have been probably one of the first people out there to be breaking that pot for the kazaza ceremony because, you know, his younger brother squandered away, wasted away, and the, the the older son, you know. I've been working for you. I've been faithful all these years, and you've never thrown me a party. So there was a lot of bitterness there. So the son, who was dead, dead to his genealogy, dead to his inheritance from that point on, had proclaimed his father was dead to himself, That same son is now being reconciled back into relationship. Repentance and reconciliation occurred a long way off from the father's home. Remember, the father ran to meet him, enduring the shame of having some exposure. The son was restored from servanthood back to sonship. Celebration was for the fact that the younger son, who had been dead, was now brought back to life. And here's what we see happening in the heavenly realm when there is one sinner brought back to life. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over the sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. The reality is we all need repentance, right? Uh, Coming to Christ is not just simply saying a little predetermined prayer and now I'm in and everything's good and I'm going to be saved the rest of my life and I'm not going to have any struggles. That's, that's fairy tale stuff there. Heartfelt repentance. Really heartfelt repentance. And then that knowledge and that awareness that he has accepted you, that he's brought you into the fold and he's restored you back to a right relationship with himself. So let's wrap this up here. Come home come home. It doesn't matter you know, where you find yourself in the story. You may, be, you may actually see yourself in the story now as the, as the father. You may have a child or a spouse or somebody that you love dearly that is, has squandered. They're in the midst of squandering those resources and those blessings and your heart may be breaking right now for them. So that may be where you connect with this story today. Uh, you may be like the, the younger son who finds, finds himself like, oh my gosh, I've created such a mess. Where can I go? Well, you know where to go. You may, be, you may find yourself at some point being like that older brother where you have been walking with Christ for a long time and you see others that are coming in and their relationship seems to be vibrant and their relationship seems to be meaningful and maybe you feel stuck. You know what? You need to come home. He is awaiting with those open arms to bring you back home. He's borne your shame and guilt. He has abolished the kazaza ceremony and silenced our accuser. The anxious, the, excuse me, the angels are anxious to celebrate. They're ready for a party. Jesus desires for you to be an instrument of His reconciliation. Are you called? Yes. Are you chosen? Have you answered the call? You're chosen. What are you chosen to do? Receive his love, but be a conduit to give his love. There's no no greater, no higher calling than that. This is the point in our service where we're going to uh, take the elements. Um, how fitting is it that... Um, Another banquet was prepared. In fact, it was the last banquet, I'll call it, the last supper, the Passover supper. And Jesus invites his disciples into that. And um, they were still kind of a mess, right? Even after walking with him for three and a half years. But he invites them in and he, he uses this wonderful object lesson of taking some bread and taking some juice and breaking it and saying, uh, this is my body which is broken for you. And then sharing sharing the wine and saying, this is my blood. This represents my blood, which is shed for you. So as we take those elements, let's let's just remember and just soak in uh, an awareness of how much much he loves you. And how much he wants you to be a conduit of that love to others. Lord, thank you um, for... Today, thank you for the blessings that you've provided. Uh, Thank you for the faith that has been uh, implemented here and the expectations that have been met uh, for those that have been seeking you. Help us, Lord, to be instruments of your peace and your love and true uh, ambassadors of reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.